Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Life on Earth began 100 million years after the planet first formed when primitive molecular life arose from Earth's volcanic depths. Henry G., a paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and senior editor at the science journal Nature, has drawn upon the latest scientific understanding and research to tell that story in his latest book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, $4.6 billion in 12 pithy chapters. It's published by St. Martin's Press, and it brings Henry G. to our show now. Welcome. Hello, Leonard. Nice to talk to you. You begin your book even earlier with the explosion of a giant star trillions of years ago. Uh, uh, yeah, and also I give you a free billion years extra <laughs> after uh, after the 4.6 billion uh, to talk about the end of life on Earth. Um so the four points, well, you know, what's a few billion years between friends? Um, well, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I talk about the whole, of, the whole of life from before its beginning to, to its very end in a tiny book that you can hold in the palm of your hand. In around 200 pages, which we'll get to. You, you, uh, didn't Earth begin when a cloud of dust circling the sun coalesced into a planet about 4.6 billion years ago, the, the, the date that you put in your title? Yeah, that's correct. The whole of the solar system, the Earth and the Sun and the other planets, coalesced from a cloud of dust and gas uh, at about that time. So it the other planets as well? The other planets? Oh, yeah, planets? yeah, all at about the same time. And, and they were all, um, it was like a shooting gallery. They weren't all in the same places that they are now. And there were lots more of them, and they kept bashing into each other. Mm. Uh, and uh, one of them bashed into the infant earth and and uh created the moon so um uh, and it, it settled down after that but um it was in that melee that life began well how did earth evolve from uh, a molten rock into a place where there was atmospheric water around 100 million years after the planet was was formed water seems to be a rather complex thing well, there is a lot of water in the universe, and the atmosphere of the early Earth contained a lot of water, like steam, but it was too hot to condense. But when the Earth cooled sufficiently, the Earth, uh, the water vapor in the atmosphere condensed and fell as rain for millions of years until the oceans were formed. So it became then a world of water. And a few comets whizzed in at the same time to add some more, uh, but it's um, that's what happened. So, but was uh, it water being... as we know it, H two O? Oh yeah, yeah. Water is uh, very, very common in the universe. In fact, in the outer solar system, a lot of the little moons of the outer planets are made mostly of ice. And our planet was an inhospitable alien place for much of its existence. When did life as even the earliest forms of life first emerge? Um, it's very, very hard to say exactly, uh, but the earliest s suggestions of life that we know of are about 4.1 billion years, uh, and that means that some form of life must have been in existence earlier than that. So within a few hundred million years of the Earth forming, life had appeared on the planet. 
And as I mentioned, uh, although it's a very long story, you tell it around 200 pages. Is that partly because the first two-thirds of Earth's history are largely about slime? <laughs> yes, I, I managed to tell uh, most of the story in the first 14 pages uh, uh, because very little is known. And I'm trying to focus in and focus in on um, things that we know more about and to talk in the last quarter of the book about the human story because humans are the audience I'm, uh, I want to attract. Uh, and so uh, if I were a giraffe, I'd be writing a rather different story. Well, I can't uh, predict but, that we have any humans listening to WBAI, but that's a whole other matter. Uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, there are, some people tell me that I'm human, but uh, uh, but my son tells me that he's only here until the lizard people come and claim him for their own. But, you know, <laughs> he's the, a medical student. What can you say? Weren't the earliest living things just membranes that stretch across microscopic gaps in rocks? Well, that's an idea, and that's the idea I pursue in the book, but other other ideas are available. Hmm. Charles, Charles Darwin speculated that life originated in what he called some warm little pond, but looking at the most primitive bacteria that we have today, uh, it looks like life originated in a super hot, boiling uh, milieu, uh, and um, the kind of places where life would originate would be in the deep sea, where life is super hot, super pressurized, where hot jets of mineral laden water squirt out of the Earth's crust. And then they become turbulent and cool and, uh, and then uh, dump their goodies in tiny membranes, tiny, tiny, tiny gaps in rocks. And you need the tiny gaps in rocks so that any anything complicated can't just dissolve away it can become concentrated and start to react with each other uh, and it seems to be that the first signs of life were the membranes that go around cells uh, which are basically like soap bubbles uh, and as soon as you have a membrane you can divide one bit of the environment from another bit of the environment and you start to get a difference and living things, when they have membranes, love to shuttle things across the membranes and extract energy. They love to, to shuttle uh, electrons and protons and become like tiny batteries. So, and that's true of all living cells today. Basically, we're all battery powered. But they were they were reproducing asexually, right? Yeah. How they long were... before we wind up with sexual reproduction? Well, that happened uh, another billion or two billion years later when cells became big enough uh, to have other cells infecting them. Um, and uh, sex is probably a way of trying to keep one step ahead of disease. I know it doesn't sound very romantic, but when you have uh, sex, what it means is the genetic material is combined to produce uniquely new combinations uh, in the offspring. And that's a way of keeping one step ahead of disease organisms. Uh, so uh, that uh, happened um, sometime later in the story, about two and a half billion years ago. Well, going back earlier, 
didn't early Earth lack oxygen? So there was no ozone layer in the upper atmosphere to block the sun's ultraviolet rays, which sterilized everything above the surface of the sea, which would, I guess, have made it inhospitable? That's correct. There was a lot of oxygen around, but oxygen is very reactive, so it wasn't free in the atmosphere. It wasn't the oxygen we breathe today. Uh, the ozone layer is caused when the oxygen in the atmosphere is is reacted with the uh, ultraviolet rays to create the ozone layer and makes a protective layer. So there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, so life evolved in the absence of oxygen. In the deep and there the... was no ozone layer either. That's correct. And as you said, that was deep in the ocean for at least a billion mm. years. Yeah, that's correct. What changed? Uh, uh, the uh, when pigments were uh, were uh, evolved to absorb the rays, that's correct. When life um, moved away from the deep sea, well, it's still in the deep sea, but when it expanded and came to the sunny surface waters of the ocean, basically the uh, little slimy bacteria hmm. learned how to suntan. <laughs> they uh, they they uh, evolved pigments that could absorb the harmful energy and. Uh, living things are very good at making use of any free energy around in the environment. So they put that energy to use uh, by uh, making uh, uh, sugars uh, and starches from sunlight. It's basically what plants still to do, do today. In It's uh, called photosynthesis, which I find very hard to pronounce because I'm losing my teeth. Oh, uh, but but, but they... they uh, uh, the earliest pigments were like that. Today, it's the green stuff that makes plants green. It's called chlorophyll. Uh, but they turned that harm into harvest. Uh, so they became colourful to, to turn a difficulty into an opportunity and um, learn how to harvest energy direct from the sun. Hasn't life on this planet adapted to every conceivable setback that living organisms could encounter? In retrospect, how predictable was each succeeding step? Um, I think it was very, I think it's very likely that when you get an Earth-like planet, life will evolve more or less inevitably. Uh, what happens later is, uh, depends on the local circumstances. But I think if life as a whole, had a motto, it would be whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hmm. Because the, the Earth has had a violent past with volcanic eruptions and collisions with asteroids. Um, but after each uh, cataclysm, life always comes back even stronger and more varied and exciting uh, than before, and usually more complicated as well, uh, as life learns to uh, life learns well. Life adapts uh, to to each new circumstance. Aren't there some similarities among all known present day species? And would that indicate that we share a common ancestor? Oh yes, it seems to be uh, that um, all known life—you, me, bacteria, giraffes, geraniums, hamsters, gerbils—we uh, all share basically the same. Uh, operating system as it were we work on the same chemistry and the same principles and this this suggests that all known creatures evolved from the same pool of similar creatures billions of years ago 
Now, it could have been that there were other kinds of life, but they've all become extinct uh, a, a long time ago. But um, they say that history is written by the victors. <laughs> uh, the life that we have today is the, uh, is, the, is the life that got through, and it's all based on the same, uh, the same chemistry, the same way of working. Didn't it take several billion years before primitive bacteria, the the prokaryotes, yeah. uh, to evolve into advanced bacteria, the eukaryotes? Yeah, that's correct. Now, bacteria are very, very tiny, but they're famously gregarious. They do love to get together mm -hmm. in different kinds and swap all their uh, chemicals and DNA in some kind of gigantic bacterial flea market. Uh, this is how... Uh, bacteria evolve against antibiotics because if a bacterium can't uh, uh, create a, a, a chemical against the antibiotic, it can pick one up in the general um, melee in which it lives. So bacteria often uh, stick together uh, in little communities. But, but then what happened after a cataclysm in the Earth's history called the Great Oxidation Event, mm. the bacteria took communal living to another level and uh, groups of bacteria would find that they would be surrounded by their own common membrane and each little bacterium would not try to do everything at once. It would concentrate on what it could do best. So the little bacteria that were best at uh, creating food from sunshine became the little green particles called chloroplasts that you see in plant cells. And the ones that were best at creating energy became the tiny little pink power packs called mitochondria that are in all cells. And at the beginning, at the middle of the cells, the heart, where all the reproduction and all the genetic heritage was stored, uh, that was another kind of bacterium. And then they became the eukaryotic cell. These are bigger than bacteria, and they can do more with less. It's classic Adam Smith economics. Uh, what they did was each bacterium in the cell as a whole became concentrated on the thing that it did best to create a single integrated organism and uh, eukaryotic cells uh, diversified many of them today are single cell the, you know, the most notorious single cell eukaryote is probably the malaria parasite uh, but then after that they started to get together to produce multicellular creatures in other words creatures with lots of eukaryotic cells stuck together like fungi and plants and animals and then sea sponges Oh, the sponges. Uh, They're you, among you my favorites. You write about the potato-shaped sponges, the saccharitis, uh, oh, which well, are a, so important a, because yeah, well, uh, the, they're the origin yeah, of the spine? Uh, well, the saccharitis was not, was not a sponge, but it was a very simple hmm. creature that filtered uh, water from, uh, from the sea and filtered out detritus. It was about the size of a of a period at the end of a sentence. It was about the size of a sand grain, and they lived in the sand grains, slurping up tiny bacteria and uh, other dirt. Um, and uh, these animals were uh, possibly the remote ancestors of ourselves. 
I'm speaking with Henry G., whose latest book is A Very Short History of Life on Earth, very within parentheses, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. Uh, it is published by St. Martin's Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. So life on Earth has survived the challenges of changing sea levels, global ice ages, volcanic extinctions, and you described the the Permian period as a cauldron of magma. Did those conditions only suit a few types of organisms, the ones that managed to avoid going extinct? I think the Permian mass extinction was a real shooting gallery, and the creatures that came out of it were largely lucky rather than particularly well adapted. This was the largest uh, catastrophe that has struck the earth in the past 500 million years there were probably larger ones before that but we don't have enough to know about them we know about six extinctions don't we well five five the six may be the one we're bringing creating right now we'll get to that yeah that's that's right but the the big five happened in the last 500 million years Uh, There may have been other ones before that, but we don't know enough about them to say. But of the big five, the one that killed off the dinosaurs was the second most catastrophic. But the Permian, which happened 250 million years ago, was by far the most destructive. And that happened over several million years uh, when basically a series of supervolcanoes like giant yellowstones erupted first in china and then in siberia uh producing molten lava that covered an area equivalent to the continental united states from new york to denver Mm. several thousand meters thick and that produced a lot of carbon dioxide which raised the earth's temperature by several degrees and it destroyed the ozone layer and created acid rain uh, and um, uh, generally, oh, yes, and mercury vapour. Uh, so um, anything that wasn't fried was boiled, broiled, or asphyxiated or poisoned. And so you survived. Killed. Yeah, um, uh, three quarters of creatures on land were killed. Uh, 95% of creatures in the sea were killed, but only a few survived. Uh, uh, but they did. Um And it brought to the end a very ancient and exotic uh, zoo uh, of creatures, of which none survive today, uh, and basically ushered in what we would recognise as the modern uh, ecosystem. But it took about 10 million years to recover uh, from it, but recover it did. And in the succeeding Triassic period was the most fun and exciting uh, period in recent Earth's history, uh, most people uh, tend to uh, think of the Triassic as just the place when dinosaurs evolved, and they get all the good press. Mm. But there were lots and lots of other fantastic animals that lived in the Triassic. Uh, So um, uh, in the book, I I celebrate it a bit. I call it Triassic Park, um, because I think uh, someone needs to bang the drum for it. What led to the move of life onto land 500 million years ago? Hadn't life been dependent on the the richness of the seas? Uh, That's correct. Uh, When life started to go onto land, 
Uh, land was uh, bare. It had no soil. Um, it, it was just rock. And, of course, uh, it was um, uh, anything moving onto land would be weighed down by its own weight and it wouldn't be able to breathe. Uh, so uh, two early creatures coming onto land, it would be a bit like venturing into empty space uh, for for us today. So it happened very slowly. It were were started, plants already coming as well? Yeah, it started about a billion years ago with tiny little crusts of lichens and slime on the seashore uh, and little plants followed and learned how to support themselves against gravity by developing woody tissue. And after that, little bugs, uh, the ancestors of the ancestors of spiders and scorpions and insects, would scuttle under this leaf litter and that would generate the soil. Uh, But it took... um, until about 400 to 300 million years ago before amphibians, uh, the ancestors of ourselves, uh, came onto land. And at first they were not very serious about it. Uh, mostly they would, um, if they arrived on land, they would scuttle back under the water as soon as possible. Uh, but the thing is, when life sees an opportunity, it goes for it. So... Uh, if there is lots of interesting food on land that nobody else is eating because they're all in the sea, you can bet that some kind of life will evolve to exploit it. Uh, but it took a long time for life to become established on land. But about 400 million years ago, there were the first forests with forest trees. They would have looked very, very strange to to us today, but they were trees and woods and animals living underneath them. How important was the development of hard-shelled eggs and seeds? Well, the hard-shelled egg and the plant equivalent is the seed. Uh, These were key to um, uh, making life on land permanent. Now, you you know that little frogs lay their spawn in ponds and streams, and uh, so amphibians today are totally dependent on water to reproduce, So what the hard-shelled egg uh, was basically a little space capsule. It was a life support system. So the embryo had all the food it needed to grow, and it even had a a, a trash can in there, so all the wastes would go in there and wouldn't poison it. Uh, The the, uh, shell wasn't necessarily hard. It was more more important that it was waterproof. So the earliest ones were probably a bit kind of leathery, but it was waterproof, but... Uh, but not airproof, so it could breathe. And the creation of this egg, called the amniote egg, was the final, uh, made the final conquest of the land possible because it meant that animals didn't have to go back to water to reproduce. And the seed is kind of much the same because in the plant life cycle, in primitive plants such as mosses uh, and ferns, uh, part of the life cycle needs to be wet uh, for fertilization, but the seed was like the little egg. It, uh, it, it put everything into a tight, resistant, drought-resistant package uh, that could hang around and um, uh, and 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 develop. Um, so these were key to the evolution of life on land. Well, don't seeds need soil? Was soil developing at this time? Yes, soil had to happen when little creatures and early plants, bacteria, particularly fungi, got into the soil and ground it up. 
and add their added their wastes and their dead bodies and so on to to make the soil rich in humus that's organic matter uh to uh make the the soils productive um and allow root systems to grow and penetrate into the into the soil for uh fungi uh have an association with land plants they live around the roots in fact almost all land plants do this today the fungi mine minerals out of the soil and the plants uh, in return give the fungi sugars that they make by photosynthesis uh and that was a key to uh, the colonization of uh land plant um, on land and and it was only then that plants could evolve seeds so there would be a medium the soil in which they could germinate well we wouldn't have had animals without plants but the plants depended on the animals as well oh yeah everything depended on each other but there was a, another thing is that one of the most difficult tricks to pull off is eating plants is vegetarianism um if an animal catches another animal uh an animal um which is being chased uh can always run away but plants can't run away they have to stand and fight so mm-hmm. plants are very very difficult to digest and they're in, they're pretty much indigestible so for the first tens of millions of years of life on land uh the the, the plants had to be had to die and be decayed by bacteria and fungi before they the material was available for animals there were very few animals that could live on plants directly uh and uh that was a, another big um innovation after the evolution of life on land well as you say the earth's earlier days the entire surface of the planet was covered by ocean there was little or no land to erode over time the proportion of land has increased and with it the potential for weathering which has increased mm-hmm. the removal of the amount of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere hasn't the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere been in a slow decline yes um at the moment of course it's increased sharply as a result of the burning of fossil fuels so carbon dioxide has had its ups and downs over the course of life on earth but mostly its downs so what happens is as you say there was very little land to begin with but as land was created by volcanic activity and you can see that today in places like hawaii or um iceland uh what would happen is carbon dioxide would react with the rock and form carbonate minerals and the more land you have the more carbon dioxide is sucked out of the atmosphere um and that reduces the greenhouse effect the other major determinant of earth's history is the brightness of the sun when the sun was young it wasn't as bright as it is today it's getting slowly brighter so but it was hotter the, wasn't it no no it was cooler, cooler than it is cooler. today yeah uh, it, it, there's something called the faint young sun paradox mm. which show which is that really uh, the earth was too cold to have liquid water on it for a lot of its early history and the only reason it did was because of the greenhouse effect the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and when a lot of the early continents were formed thrust up above the ocean they sucked up a lot of the carbon dioxide and that created a series of ice ages mm. that lasted 300 million years 
and covered the whole earth with ice, all was, the earth. That was the great oxidation event that you mentioned that, earlier. That was, yeah, that was probably one of the biggest cataclysms in, in earth history. And that didn't that lead to the burial of carbon, which decreased the yeah. benefit from the greenhouse effect that, and, and led yes, to the that, ice age? That's, that's correct. When the, when you get a lot of continents forming, uh, that, that um, sucks up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and the greenhouse effect doesn't happen. So the earth gets much colder and freezes. Um, and that's event. That is what happened. Now there have been ice ages since the, that huge event, but they haven't lasted as long and they haven't covered so much of the planet. Sure. There's been more land to erode, but the sun is that much hotter. Well, that ice age lasted 300 million years. That's a long yeah, time. It, it, it did. And then there was another one that lasted a mere 80 million years. <laughs> so how uh, did life respond to those changes? How, how did it survive the, the fact that you have uh, this ice age and then you have the sun um, uh, producing less heat, little heat, uh, and, and it isn't all that bright? Well, um, what life does is it comes back even stronger and more efficient by becoming more complicated and being able to do more with less. So uh, what came out of the great oxidation event and that ice age was the eukaryotic cell that we talked about earlier, mm. when little bacteria got together to become cells that could uh, survive uh, on fewer resources. They pulled uh, their uh, resources? They did. They did. And they, they, they became better at doing uh, more things with less and, and going further. Uh, and that's what happened after the great oxidation event. Uh, after the event that happened 800 million years ago, when there was the, the small matter of an 80 million year long ice age that covered the Earth's surface, the animals came out of that, that produced animals out of that. Um, so... Uh, what happens after all these disasters is creatures, animals, plants, various kinds, come out more complicated and stronger and tougher and uh, and uh, all looking for trouble and waiting to see what else the Earth can throw at them. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. latest book is A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters, published by St. Martin's Press. Um, so I, I, I'm still con confused about what process led life forms to move onto land 500 million years ago. You point out that it, it wasn't the development of legs because fish, some fish already had legs. Yeah, um, what didn't happen was uh, some little creatures looked on land and then a, in a fit of heroic prolepsis said, I'm going to move on to land. Huh. Uh, what, what generally happened is that fish uh, evolved 
to live in water of negative depth, as it were. What happened um, in that time when the early when the fish were coming onto land was there were a lot of big predatory fish with very stout, fleshy legs. The fins were supported on basically little legs. So rather than having uh, fingers and toes at the ends of their limbs, they had fishy fin rays. And these big fish were they weren't flattened from side to side like your goldfish. Um, they were flattened top to bottom like alligators and they lived in very shallow water and were ambush predators they would shoot out and um, and grab anything that swam by or anything just above the surface of the water but a problem with living in very shallow water is sometimes the water dries out completely mm-hmm. and they would find themselves uh, on dry land and um uh, scuttled underwater as quickly as possible so some of these fishes evolved fingers and toes uh they weren't very serious about how many fingers and toes they had the earliest ones had six seven eight uh, on each leg uh they only settled on the number five sometime later uh so these early reptiles they they were amphibians uh basically we'd call them amphibians they were kind of salamander like but some of them were quite big they were uh, you know three four feet long but most of them were much smaller uh, and they scuttled around in wet swamp forests uh, uh, and in the various pools uh, there. So, But really, they were kind of fish with legs rather than amphibians for a long time. And then how do reptiles come along? Well, the reptiles... Because they are amphibians. our basic ancestors, aren't they? Yeah, the, the reptiles were those amphibians that evolved that egg with the waterproof hard shell. Because uh, the problem if you're an amphibian laying nice, squishy, soft frog spawn everywhere is that uh, frog spawn makes a tasty snack for anything else coming by. Mm-hmm. So, so amphibians in the modern world have evolved all kinds of strategies to protect their eggs. Sometimes they stand guard over them. Sometimes they're incubated in their bodies. Sometimes they lay the frog spawn in little out-of-the-way places, such as holes in trees. So the evolution of the hard-shelled egg at the start was just another clever way for amphibians to protect their eggs. But, of course, when they did that, they became the reptiles, and these eggs allowed them to live away from water for their whole life cycle. And it was from those reptiles that... um, uh, all the modern reptiles and dinosaurs and birds and mammals and us evolved. Hmm. You describe how flying giant reptiles, Pteranodon, quote, I'm quoting you, cruise <laughs> the seas, winging between the young and divergent continents, and how ancient mosses and liverworts crept onto barren, wind-scoured coasts that were, quote, as dry and lifeless as the surface of the moon. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> This it, um, it sounds like a science. Well, you you've written science fiction. This sounds like um, part of the plot of a science fiction book. I wanted to make it. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to tell a story, Leonard. I didn't want to write a very didactic science text that people would uh, feel was uh, off-putting, uh, because the history of life on Earth is the most fantastic, epic tale. 
full of cliffhangers and adventures and amazing disasters and heroic mm. victories with heroes and villains. And it's just a terrific story. So I did want to write it as an exciting bedtime story. I mean, I even start Once Upon a Time. Once Upon a Time, I write, a giant star was dying. Mm. Uh, and I, I wanted to attract a, a, a more wider readership who might not be familiar with life on Earth, um, apart from maybe dinosaur books with pictures, uh, but who wanted to get an idea of how it was. Because it's such a great story, and everything is there for a great story, so I decided just to tell the story. Um, uh, using you know language to make it exciting, so people would I hope be engaged with uh, with the twists and turns of the narrative and come to be moved and even love squishy sponges and uh, odd creatures like that that they might not even have considered before. So I wanted to write a different kind of a different kind of book. People are fascinated by dinosaurs. Were dinosaurs originally designed to fly? Um, yes. Now, uh, I think so. Uh, birds evolved from dinosaurs. There has been quite a lot of controversy about about that in the past, but I think the evidence mm. is now quite clear. Yeah. It seems that a lot of dinosaurs had feathers, even dinosaurs that were about as aerodynamic as a cinder block had feathers. <laughs> And, and, and dinosaurs also had a lot of uh, features of their anatomy that we now um, associate with birds and flight. They had a very lightweight airframe with hollow bones of struts, weight, weight, uh, very lightweight but strong skeletons. And they also have this amazing breathing system in which the whole of the body is basically filled with air sacs. Uh, all the internal organisms to be air-cooled, which is very efficient. So when you think of these enormous dinosaurs like Brachiosaurus and Diplodocus, these huge, huge giants that are so awe-inspiring, it's really better to consider them not as huge lizards, but as gigantic quadrupedal flightless birds. Well, so that's dinosaurs. I think they were, they always had the birdness in them. Well, although it's popularly thought that dinosaurs came first, didn't mammals actually precede them? Well, mammals generally yeah, being small. Yeah. And isn't it mammals now believed that mammal evolution began around 250 to 300 million years ago during the uh, Carboniferous period? Um, what was well, happening then? Mammals, well, well, mammals and dinosaurs both trace their ancestry back to the earliest reptiles living in the Carboniferous period. But uh, they both became uh, apparent as such. Mammals and dinosaurs are recognisable as such. In the Triassic, the great period after the Permian mass extinction, the earliest mammals appeared in the Triassic at about the same time as the earliest dinosaurs. Well, because but we share a common ancestor, don't we? Yeah, the amniotetrapods? we do. We do. That's right. They, all our ancestors were um, those 
those creatures that laid the hard-shelled egg, mm. uh, the amniotes, uh, the, uh, which we talked about before. Yeah. They're and neither mammals fact, nor reptiles, we they were, they, but they've disappeared. They, they, that, that's right, that's right. I mean, there was uh, all kinds of creatures have evolved and disappeared, and we're just the ones that are left. Uh, but dinosaurs evolved from those creatures, so did mammals. And so did many other creatures we see today, like frogs and turtles and lizards and snakes. And modern amphibians, of course, uh, uh, all, uh, all came out of that, that heritage from the, from the Triassic period. Was it a major development, the segmentation in the body plans of, of primitive animals? Uh, segmentation's happened a lot in evolution. It's happened in insects and it's happened in, in us in our own heritage, um, using the same, basically, the same biochemical recipes, uh, uh, but, of course, manifesting in, in very different ways. We talked about that little tiny creature, Saccharitis, that lived in the sand grains of the sea that may have been an early ancestor of us, hmm. the vertebrate animals with backbones, uh, and there are some very strange creatures uh, called vetulicolians, which have got little potato, Mr. Potato Head heads with the gill slits, but they've got a long segmented tail, which is good with a backbone of sorts, which is good for swishing from side to side and swimming through the water. And it was from that kind of heritage that uh, fishes and land animals evolved. Now, I neglected to to ask you about insects. When did they arise? Uh, well, insects, if you think about land vertebrates, tetrapods, as, as land-going fish, you can think about insects as land-going shrimp. So in the sea today live the crustaceans, you know, shrimp and lobster and crabs. Insects were a group of crustaceans that came onto land, um, uh, together with um, other uh, little jointed-legged creatures like spiders. Um, they were among the first to come onto land. Uh, and the heyday of the insects was in the Carboniferous period, when there was a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere, and these huge swamp forests. And there were scorpions as big as dogs, and millipedes as big as carpets, and dragonflies as big as seagulls. Uh, and um, the first um, creatures to actually live on plant matter were these gigantic seagull-sized dragonflies. They didn't have two pairs of wings. They had three pairs of <laughs> wings. Uh, because it seems just as tetrapods experimented with different numbers of fingers and toes, insects experimented with different numbers of pairs of wings um, until all the insects we have today have either two pairs of wings or one pair of wings with the other changed into uh, something else like a wing cover. You, you said that there were higher oxygen levels during the Carboniferous period. What led to that? Because earlier we mentioned that there was very little oxygen. Yeah, um, oxygen uh, came about a, a long time ago as part of the great oxidation event and also a bit later when the sponges filtered out all the gunge from seawater that allowed oxygen 
to accumulate in the sea and the atmosphere without immediately being swallowed up by decay bacteria. But by the time of the Carboniferous, life was established on land. And one of the things that pumped in the oxygen were the forests, because plants absorb carbon dioxide, but they also, as we know, produce oxygen. Mm. The rainforests, for example, are the lungs of the earth. They produce the oxygen we breathe. But in the Carboniferous, there were rainforests like nothing else. There were trees called lycopods that were incredibly profligate with carbon dioxide. They used to suck up enormous amounts of carbon and produce enormous amounts of oxygen. So there was so much oxygen in the atmosphere that lightning strikes could set a forest alight, even if it was completely waterlogged. Um, and uh, that was that. It was a very heady period of about 70 million years when 90% of the Earth's coal reserves were created. It was, a, it was quite a period when trees would just pull in carbon dioxide and uh, convert it into growth <laughs> and produce a lot of oxygen. Listening- and that, of course, cre- created another ice age, but that was just on the South Pole, so we needn't worry about it. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. The show is Leonard Lopate at Large. And my guest is Henry G., whose latest book is A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters, published by St. Martin's Press. Now, you say that the story of human evolution turns out to be much stranger than we thought even 20 years ago. Yeah, there. well, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is why it is that human beings, well, the ancestors of human beings, got up on their hind legs and walked. As, as everyone with back pain, <laughs> which is most people, but weren't apes, weren't yes. other, uh, weren't apes and uh, other uh, <laughs> monkeys, whatever, weren't they also working, walking on two legs sometimes? No, just sometimes, uh-huh. but not as a matter of habit. Uh-huh. I mean, you they can see chimpanzees today. Yeah, but, you know, a, a lot of animals can walk on two legs for a short time. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, tra- performing dogs and bears can do it. Uh, but they're not very good at it. But uh, the human lineage evolved to be bipedal all the time. Uh, And there's a friend of mine, Jeremy De Silva, who's written a whole book about this. Uh, But why human beings got up and walked on hind legs is a great mystery and Mm. obviously a bad move. uh, Because (laughs) it's it's completely re-engineered the backbone. Uh, The backbone evolved 400, 500 million years ago. Um, uh, to hold, uh, to be horizontal and held in tension, uh, uh, you know, in engineering terms. Now you take the same structure and you turn it through a right angle. You turn it through 90 degrees to vertical and held in compression. Um, And this causes a most immense amount of problems. So nobody really knows why this happened. But in the last 20 years, what seems to have happened is the discovery of a lot more human-like but non-human creatures on the earth living until relatively recently as recently as fifty thousand years ago there were at least five different species of human apart from our own living on the earth at once in fact most of our history as a species homo sapiens 
uh, we've shared the earth with a number of other human-like creatures. And it's only now that we're the only ones left. Although, so it would have been interesting to go back and, and have a conversation with some of our relatives. Although we do have some Neanderthal genes in, in many humans today. Yes. What about well, we some do. of the other we ones? Um, Is it only Neanderthals when, that we interbred with? Well, no, there were other ones. There were the what I call the Yetis. These were the Denisovans that originated. They evolved on the Tibetan plateau. Uh, and uh, later on, they came down to uh, uh, lower elevations. And their genes are very common in people who live in Southeast Asia and out into the Pacific. But interestingly, they have given to us the gene that allows people in Tibet to survive on low oxygen uh, at, at high altitude. Uh, so uh, when human beings, Homo sapiens, appeared about 300,000 years ago, we were a very raw ingredient, and we've been seasoned with a lot of other things, the Denisovans and the Neanderthals, as you say. Anyone who has an ancestry that isn't exclusively African has between 2 and 4% Neanderthal DNA, as well as possibly uh, Denisovan DNA. And there are people with African uh, uh, DNA uh, may have DNA from other kinds of pre-human creature that we don't know anything about at all, except from the DNA that they've bequeathed to modern creatures. So we don't even know their fossils. Really, we know about as much of them as the smile of the Cheshire cat before it fades away. So there were lots and lots of other pre-human and human-like creatures around. Most of them, we, we don't know. We, we have no idea about their existence, uh, except just tiny hints in modern DNA. We have very little time, but I want to address a few things. You write that early humans responded to the increases of harsh living conditions with larger brains and increasing stores mm -hmm. of fat. And then I, I also just, if you can very quickly address the whole, the importance of continental drift to this story. Uh, yeah, well, when humans originated, uh, it was that the continents were more or less where they are now, but we uh, are living in a, another series of ice ages. You know, they, we, these things just keep on happening. Um, but when there, when there is ice in the poles, what happens is the tropics, where the humans were evolving, get much drier. Uh, and so what happened was... Uh, humans evolved not to be vegetarians or dilettante foragers, but to be carnivorous pack hunters. They learned to do another things like, like other things. One thing that modern humans are good at, which apes aren't, is running. Not just walking, but running. And this evolved. Humans are very bad sprinters, but are very good endurance runners. Uh, and pack hunting evolved among running humans. Uh, so uh, to chase the game that lived on all the grasslands, and that allowed humans to spread beyond Africa for the first time, uh, um, maybe two million years ago, uh, and um, uh, move out into the, into the other parts of the world. Uh, these were, this was Homo erectus. This was an ancestor of ourselves. Homo sapiens also evolved in Africa, 
uh, but much later and spread out in various waves, starting about 125,000. But that was really to do with the ice ages when the thing is with ice, it sucks up all the water from the oceans. So the sea levels go down. So little bits of little islands that were once distinct were joined together. So for most uh, for most places in the earth, humans just had to walk there. So uh, that's really the, the secret. Well, aren't humans now making the Earth progressively less habitable uh, through climate change? And hasn't it been predicted that humans will become extinct in a few thousand years because of what we've done? Well, this is a question I've been thinking of a lot recently. 30 seconds. I was very... I was very vague about it, but if I had to, um, I don't want to make your uh, audience worried, but I think we'll be gone in a few generations. Mm. Henry G., latest book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years and 12 Pithy Chapters from St. Martin's Press. He's also the author of a number of other books, including Jacob's Ladder, In Search of Deep Time, The Science of Middle Earth, The Accidental Species, and... It has been my great pleasure to have him as a guest today on our show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Leonard. It's been a pleasure. Very much enjoyed talking with you today. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Reggie Johnson, our live engineer, and to Leonard Lopez at large executive producer, Jesse Lent for all of the great work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today... I need to ask you to support WBAI so we can continue to bring you this show uh, weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. Without your help, you won't, we won't be able to continue to bring you this unique in-depth content because WBAI relies 100% on contributions from its listeners. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org. You're not going to hear a conversation of the sort that we just had anywhere else. And you, probably most people will call us. The number is 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Please do that to, to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on New York Radio Dial that's entirely listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible contribution. A particularly great way to help is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15 a month or whatever level you feel comfortable with. And our great thanks to everyone who has already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. I hope you can join us again for Monday's show when historian and policy analyst Christopher W. Shaw will discuss his book, First Class, the U.S. Postal Service, Democracy, and the Corporate Threat. You won't want to miss it. Have a great weekend.